Welcome to the Welding Codex, episode 24. We're going to talk about filler metal control. If you get a chance, visit train-eng.com. That's our advertiser. Thanks. Welcome to the Welding Codex, guys. Um, Pete and I have been out for a little bit. We slogged through 27 episodes. I don't know how many it was, but it was a lot. We worked our way from cover to cover on AWS D1.1, and it took us a while to get back into the groove. So now we're going to just start working our way through random welding-related terms, items, concepts, things that you might run across out there in the real world but we're afraid to ask about. So Pete and I are just going to have a conversation, a fireside chat, and touch base. So this one is going to be on filler metal control. Filler metal control, what does that mean? We always hear it. We always hear the term. So Pete, what do you got? Let's talk about filler metal control. Well, so, so for filler metal control, it's kind of like, yeah, we're talking, how, how do we control it? Um, basically, I mean, where do we store it, store our electrodes or we have our, the actual metal side and then we also have the paper side of the equation on it. And I think before we deep dive too deep into it, I think we want to talk about one thing that comes with all of our uh, filler metals, and that's the paperwork. And when you buy electrodes, there's two ways to, to purchase them. You can purchase them with your run-of-the-mill electrodes will come with what's called a COC or conformance. And that is what from the manufacturer could have been tested some time ago, it could be even a different size electrode, could be definitely going to be from a different batch, and it's telling us that these were made the same way, they're not the same exact pedigree, but they're, they were made on the same, the same thought process, same manufacturing methods, so it should be applicable, it should be good. Then the other side is where we're actually going off of a heat number or a lot number, uh, depending on the, the electrode and how the manufacturer does it. This would be from testing from that actual heat of material or a lot, which may even be smaller, of a, a, a run of a single heat made during a, a lot of time period. This is much stricter, uh, is not as commonly um, requested of manufacturers or, or is found. So if you're in an industry that requires that, whenever you're buying your stuff, make sure you request the on a heat uh, MTR basis as opposed to a COC basis. So that we kind of got that thrown out there. Uh, well, I was going to go jump ahead, in here and say, um, and Pete's talking about, you know, certain industries and their requirements. I used to work on the West Coast for a foundry out there, and they did a lot of Navy nuclear and nuclear and blah, blah, blah. So when we would buy our 7018, we would buy the the heat number, the lot, the batch, whatever they made. I think ESOP, we got it from ESOB, and I think it turned out to be about 40,000 pounds of material. And we would just buy the whole thing, and then we'd get all the nuclear testing done, all the Navy nuclear testing done. It would cost us ten or $15,000 or whatever the number was. And we were buying all this, $70,000, $40,000, 2 bucks a pound, whatever it is. And then we would just have it. We'd file that away. 
we had all this material, even if we used it on a job that didn't require it, if somebody screwed up and used this stuff on something, I guess there was no way to screw it up. But what it did was it gave us insurance that, you know, there was no way that we'd have two batches of 7018 running around and somebody used the wrong stuff on something nuclear. We just used the nuclear stuff on everything. We just had the testing, the paperwork. We were just covered. So, but that's what Pete was talking about. Sometimes some industries, you just need it. And anyways, go on with what you're going to say there, Pete. Well, so uh, exactly like, like subsea pipelines, we we did everything by a by a single lot or batch or uh, with the with the heat number. So now that we have that kind of thrown out there, so I think we kind of want to break it into when when we get our filler metals, um, it's segregating up our so we don't one is don't mix up different. We don't want to mix up 7018s with 6010s or 6011s. So you want to have a storage methodology where you can keep you can keep your electrodes easy to easy to access. Uh, that's important. Keeping them from damage. Don't most manufacturers say? I mean, keep them dry. Don't get them wet. Uh, that's uh, what would seem to be a simple uh, request. Uh, but however, it sometimes seems very complicated that. Uh, I, I've dealt with helping some manufacturers with uh, submerged arc issues because their roof was leaking right onto their flux, and it had been like that way for years, and I guess they thought nothing of it until the welds were failing. So basically keep good housekeeping on, on your consumables and keep them where, like I said, as separated. Well, and what, what diving in here, Pete, um, you didn't intentionally miss it, but the one I, where I've ran across problems is um, stainless steels, 316, 309, 30 what, 310, 321, whatever your all stainless the shiny steels stuff. are. All that stuff you can get, uh, if, if you don't have all your ducks in a row and all your um, eggs in one basket with the stainless steels and nickel alloys and that kind of stuff, you can really come into some problems, so... Um, you really need to have grown-ups in charge of the rod room when you're dealing with, you know, like Pete said, the shiny stuff. You know, your carbon steels, you're going to need it too, especially if you start dealing with impact-tested materials. Um, we had some issues years ago where um, I think we had to cut out some welds because uh, we didn't have real tight control on our uh, rod room. This is a place I worked at years ago. But anyways, uh, the welder, new guy, goes in and grabs a some um, dual shield but he doesn't get the dual shield that was on the special pallet that was marked used for this job so anyway something you need to keep the shiny stuff go ahead pete yeah so so going on that so on in addition to our environmental controls depending on your industry uh sometimes you may need to really monitor your environmentals uh a lot of structural shops I've seen it where basically you got a pallet of flux core and everyone goes and robs a spool off of it whenever they need it. Uh, I've been where we had to keep our all of our electrodes at 10, 15 degrees above dew point. So we basically had a Connex with a heater in it and it kept it hot. Uh, we also had to do, we had to run a log check. So we had someone that would check it 
three times a day to make sure that our our relative humidity was was correct. It was low enough. We are, our temperature was high enough, and that was just in a general storage for unopened material. So depending on what industry you're in, it can go from something very simple to something very complex. And humidity or relative humidity uh, is something that you do need to know about and be aware of. And there's a lot of tables you can easily find online. But basically, the hotter it is, the more grains of moisture you can um, you can hold. And that's normally how those, at least using English units, they're in grains. Um, and that's just something to kind of keep aware of. And that, that'll, uh, if you ever wondered on why you can have your 7018s exposed for a certain amount of time, it's kind of based on those temperature logs of temperature versus uh, water content but if we've moved from beyond just keeping everything we have a nice facility to keep it in keeps it nice dry it's happy electrodes we don't we have them all labeled where we're not going to mix up our 308l with our 308h uh, which was a big problem for me at one time uh, where i tried to be smart and basically uh have some things um copper coated or not copper coated when I was dealing with uh, two and a quarter and three and a quarter chrome, but that didn't work. A lot of times you can uh, use spray paint and just spray paint the ends of the rods. Um, I worked on a job where we did that, where you know the the 309 got spray painted, the ends of the rods got spray painted green, and I'm talking the end of the the electrode end of the rod. So they just open up the can and they just spray paint that green or hit it with green paint so that you could look at it and know, oh, all right. And then, like you say, the 308L or the 308H would be red and the other one would be purple or whatever. So there's a lot of ways you can, you know, keep these apart. One of the keys is if you're doing, if you have a situation where you got a full-time um, rod room attendant, that can... That can save you a lot of time, effort, problems. I mean, it's expensive, but if you're on a big enough job and you have enough manpower that um, you can justify it. A lot of times, um, old welders are good for this job. You know, that guy that's 64, 65, needs two more years. He just wants to putter around and keep everybody off his lawn. That guy. So I've worked on jobs where, you know, your rod room attendants were generally you know, a more mature individual, somebody that didn't need a lot of action and they could kill the afternoon when they weren't handing out rods, sweeping the place up or doing a crossword puzzle or whatever. Yeah. The guy with the bum leg. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So, so there's kind of, we have, so we, we got, I mean, we got, we've established that you have to have controls, not only just, I mean, being able to sort the stuff up different ways of designating it. So trying to minimize people making mistakes uh, but this is just, I mean, either rods that can be used right out of their container or that aren't, that we haven't even got to an oven yet. And so now with our filler metal control going into, now we have, let's say, things that are temperature where you have to control them, uh, let's say, our 7018s or uh, electrodes where you have to keep them at, or rebaking. So on, on this, uh, one thing I've methodology I've seen a lot is where people have multiple ovens 
And if the job is large enough, you have one, one or two or three, however many dedicated to the most common electrode that you're using on the job. And that's all those ovens are used for. And then when you have those monster 100, 400 pound, those giant ovens that they have multiple little cubby holes in them, because uh, I mean, you're, you're running hot in those things. So you can't exactly just write on a piece of paper and stick it in there that, hey, this is our whatever electrode. Uh, this is where you can uh, hang like a steel stencil uh, or a hard stamp something, and that's where you lay it in for that cubby. And that's what that electrode is to, to try to keep uh, heads or tails on which one is which. And if you're rebaking items, uh, that's also where actually additional ovens come in. And you can basically hang a sign and basically say, I mean, don't pull rods out of this oven until a certain date and time uh, if you're rebaking items. Uh, a lot of electrodes, they have a maximum number of times that they can be rebaked. And tracking that can be very difficult. Um, what I would, uh, that's where I'd really work on maintaining, not giving so many, someone, so many extra rods that they're going to run out or that they're going to have surplus, uh, or using, uh, heated, heated quivers to, to where they're, they're always staying hot and they don't have to go through the rebaking cycle. Yeah. The heated quivers, um, when I was at the Hanford site, um, we had heated quivers and that, I mean, it's kind of painful, the guy, to lug them out there, but you're going to be out there all day. So, And if you got an apprentice or whatever, a lot of times they lug it out there. But, you know, you'd lug your 7018 out there and make your welds. And usually, I think we had a lot of iron workers, too, and they they were welding things onto uh, um, embeds and concrete and whatnot structural welds so they they would generally be in the same place it's kind of painful but it's not like you're running all over the job site with that thing usually you'd go to one spot and set up camp and there you'd be for a while so um heated rod ovens not a bad way to go yeah and uh, moving it's the same thought process with uh submerged art because i mean you're dealing with flux there and that's something that, I mean, you also have to keep heated and keep a rotation of. So it's a, a lot of times it's good to where you can hang a, a sign like just put in 50 pounds, well, 500 pounds into an oven. I mean, as soon as you put it in there, it's not like it's at temperature. It's going to take a while. So we can easily basically put a sign on there. Do not pull flux until... 2 p.m. Or, or something like that to where you know that you now have an even bake on your uh, on your on your flux when you've taken it out or dumped it from from your bag into it so that's also something uh, just because you have put it in the oven doesn't mean it's immediately there yet we used to uh, Gary and I worked at a place where we used to rebake a uh, flux or to make sure that it wasn't uh, it didn't have any moisture in it and we would cycle through uh, baking pans of uh, flux through our heat treatment oven and that could kind of that could get a little squirrely on keeping track of what was where and how many times it got cooked and and whatnot luckily we didn't reuse our flux there so uh it was more just taking it from the hopper and running it through a heating cycle well i was gonna say too um another thing with i usually end up throwing in the philosophical side of this but um philosophically on 
on this filler metal control, a lot of it is education. This isn't the Manhattan Project where you got to keep, you know, you're on a need-to-know basis. A lot of these guys that you might run across in the industry are very knowledgeable, but they don't know what you're doing or why we're doing this or why why do we what do we got going on? So it doesn't hurt to, you know, explain things to people a couple times. Okay, just so we're all on the same page or, you know, take your filler metal control, take your filler metal control program and, you know, whatever document that is and boil it down into, you know, two pages or a page or, you know, Pete's notes on this. Hey, this, 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 and this. This batch number, don't cook it. This batch number, cook it. Sharing the information with people is not necessarily a bad thing in most instances. You know, keep them, keep a, keeping some people in the loop and letting them know what's going on definitely helps in regards to keeping the the screw ups to a minimum. Correct. And and going on that, the, for a, a lot of these electrodes, especially let's say more on the steel side, the, the whole reason we're doing this is for hydrogen control. The keeping, because some of the fluxes are hydroscopic, so they want to absorb, absorb moisture and bring it in and take it in. And so what you're at an elevated temperature, you're, it's, you're, you're not allowing it to get uh, absorbed or you're really delaying the absorption uh, to it. So right. that's, that's the reason why. I mean, if we try, I mean, preheating the base material to keep out, I mean, to reduce hydrogen cracking, but we're not reducing or keeping our electrodes safe from absorbing hydrogen, kind of defeating ourselves uh, from the get-go. So on the carbon steel side, that's that's the whole thought process on your hydroscopic uh, electrodes. That's like your, I mean, your 7018s are, are like probably the, the prime example that most folks run into. And then now on the flip side, you don't want to be putting your 6010s or your, your ones with stereolastic uh, coatings. Those don't get baked. They actually well, need moisture in them. Teach high school here in the Houston area, but I tell my students, you know, 6010 is is a coat hanger covered with wood chips and paper. When we're talking cellulose, that's what we're talking. And we want that stuff to burn, but there needs to be a certain amount of moisture in there for it to function properly and for that flux to break down and provide shielding. If you're working out in Phoenix and you know, Saudi and some of these places, and you're using 6010. I've heard of people having to, you know, take the 6010 and run a wet washcloth across it, or they dump it in a um, bucket of water that their filler metal was the so dry that they'd have to, you know, add some moisture in it to get that stuff to flow properly. Exactly. I've I've heard the same thing from multiple people working in yeah in the Middle East. They had to do that. So it's there. Th- those those are completely different electrode coverings. So one we got to have some moisture in it. The other one we try to really protect. The same thing with subarc flux. There are some fluxes that are hydroscopic. There are some that are not. So you got to make sure you know and look at what your manufacturer recommends, and that it'll really help understand why we're we're jumping through these. Another one that's not talked a lot about is well, what about FluxCore or GMAW uh, solid wire? Can you just leave it in the spools for a day, a day, two days? Probably depending on where you're at, probably not too bad. Having worked offshore, one of the tests we would actually do, we would actually open a spool and leave it out by the 
quayside for a day or two and then go and get it hydrogen tested and see how much we we gained sometimes uh depending on the manufacturer we did pretty good and there was very little difference past those two days i guess at some point it would continue to increase i know a lot of people say i just run out some wire and cut the end off well there are some flux core wires that do not have a seam along the length of it a lot of them do so it's not just the end that you can uh, absorb moisture and it's through that seam you have the full length so i would say Depending on where you're at, uh, if you're not going to be welding for a while, it'd be best to put it in a bag. A lot of them say put it in their foil bag they came with. Uh, some uh, companies, they make uh, ovens explicitly for flux core and GMAW. And what they basically do is they keep it at a low temperature, I think in the low low hundreds, like 125 or something like that, 150 degrees Fahrenheit, basically to where it keeps them raw keeps them warm make sure they're just not absorbing moisture so i would say it's a this is there there's not a whole lot of written rules out there for those two processes uh basically one easy one is oh hey the surface is rusting well you're probably going to need to undo a lot of spools of or wounds a wire off of it if that'll even uh get you to where you have a clean wire again i'm not sure well, and the, the another thing with like the MIG wires is keeping them the the gas metal arc wire um, is keeping keeping track of it so you know what you've got depending on and this gets back to like dealing with the stainless stick rods um, you know being able to oh what what are we using on this job what are we using on this job because when you start we used to, a first job out of school, we used a lot of Lincoln um, MIG wire. I worked for a place in Iowa that made hydraulic cylinders. But anyways, we used, um, we had LA, L56 or, and then I think some LA90. And I forget what the designations were on the, you know, the ER70S6 maybe. And then one was an ER80 something or a 90 or I forget what the designation for the, LA90 was. I think the 90 LA90 is probably a 90,000 tensile strength. Well, whatever. But every now and then somebody'd grab the wrong spool of this stuff and use it on something that they weren't they'd use the they'd use the understrength material on something that should have had on an overstrength part, you know, they'd use the 70,000 material on a 90,000 part and we'd end up cutting things apart or jumping through hoops or having to do a lot of paperwork. So in those instances with the wires, because you can't tell by looking at it, you really got to look at the the documentation or the tags on the reels. Or in this case, I think we were using 500-pound spools, and sometimes guys would hook up the wrong spool to whatever or wouldn't switch over. So these are things that, you know, headaches that can a lot of times be avoided through communication and, you know, passing things down to the, the oncoming shift or, people you might not see for a minute or two so yeah and and based on like just what gary was saying so i had a job where we were doing a one and a quarter and two and a quarter chrome and i thought i was going to be slick and because you can buy those kind of consumables actually most of your carbon uh steel kind of consumables are low alloy you can buy them with or without a copper coating so i bought all one of them was bought with a copper coating and one was bought without 
And so just by ident- by looking at it, because we did, we were doing a lot of submerged arc and uh, and 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 TIG welding on it. So it was easily someone looked at it, they knew exactly what they had in their hand, and that that thought process worked well on this big piping job until all of a sudden. I got a whole ton of 304, both L and H, and that was all shiny. And that really threw my easy-peasy identification scheme out the window. So that's uh, just something to think about. If if you're only dealing with one or two, well, with, let's say, two different wires or two different electrodes, copper coating, you can also do it by size. 035 for one, 045 for another, or uh, bigger if you're using like like 116th and 056, something like that. Um, for for let's say your flex core ones, if you can get away with doing something like that, to where uh, size instantly distinguishes that this is whatever is different on the electrode. So there there's little tricks you can play like that that'll that'll help uh, that'll help out at times. Like I said before, sometimes you can paint things. Just the ends of filler material on the stick rod, it'll, you know, paint it, you know, get a paint pen or not a paint pen, but some way to just dab the end with paint. So, you know, it's not interfering with the flow of electricity, but just that end of the rod is painted. Oh, I'm using the white ones. I should, well, these ones are red. What's up with this? The guy in the rod room gave me the wrong material, so... Keeping track of this stuff is, yeah, it can save you a lot of money or cost you a lot of money. Exactly. And so for for another thing with the, with the rod room, I mean, if if you're a big enough uh, outfit to where you have a dedicated person, that is fantastic. Probably a lot of shops don't. And where the really small shop with a couple guys, you can easily have communication. But I would still, even if you only had a couple folks, I would still do do this. What uh, on this big piping project, uh, we didn't have a full-time um, rod room person, and you could go in there and get whatever you needed or wanted, and we ran 24-7. So what I did is I basically hung a clipboard and had a pen attached to it, and I basically said, if you take whatever you need, but I'll write down what you take. I want to know the heat number, the consumable, the WPS you were using. And time and date, and then basically just print your name on it. And what I would do every day, I would so when I'd show up in the morning, I would go through that and I would match up. We only had a handful of WPSs on that job, so it was pretty easy to figure out to make sure that we were using the right one. And that was uh, that worked pretty good for how I would control consumables. And basically, I mean, with since you had to have a WPS number, usually the welder would have it crammed in his pocket and he'd unfold it and write it on there and you could look on there and it would tell you what what filler metal you needed and i had all my 304h on one side my 304 or excuse me 308 h 308 l on the opposite side of the wall so you couldn't just sit there and walk to the wrong side and somehow grab it you had to walk and it wasn't like they were sitting right next to each other two shiny materials so i tried segregating things around the where you had to make the a conscious effort to make a mistake. So what are we missing here, Pete? What have we not beat into the dirt on this one? I guess on the paperwork side, what I would do as we kind of we talked about before in our other podcast about 
getting a file and shoving in the paper is I would have when when as soon as you take delivery of your consumables, make sure you go out there and steal a little shipping items that come off of it. So you got your MTRs, write down, make sure your heat numbers match up with what you thought you were buying is what you were buying received. And I would basically run a paper version, scan it in. And so you can start making sure you have all your all your certs, whether you're running COCs or actual MTRs. Uh, a, lo- a lot of companies now, they only they don't even give you papers. So you have to go to their website and print it out. Um, so I, I would make sure you got your paper book and your electronic folder going of it and have a log sheet. Even if you have a rod, a rod room attendant, have a log sheet of when when things get checked out. An easy way is when you skim through that every day or two days or once a week, depending on how busy you are, it also you can identify what your high movers are to where you really need to start checking your inventory. So you're, you're kind of accomplishing two things at once is or that, you know, things are going out out the door when you need a pre-order uh, that'll that'll help out. And also you can kind of track on who's working on what job or Hey, why is welder Billy Bob never getting rod? How, how, how is he accomplishing anything? So there's, there's a lot to be said for having that log sheet and reading through it real quick that can help out. I would throw in on the log sheet too. have a log set up an Excel spreadsheet on your materials coming in too, you know, so you can put heats. I would scan everything in and then make a PDF file, have a folder with all your certs or if you've downloaded them from the you know the company website if you went to esob or lincoln or whoever and you downloaded it dump those in there but also in that same file put in an excel file all your relevant information in regards to that filler metal the brand the heat and the lot you know the size blah 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 and enter that stuff in there and like pete said that'll help you track it i wouldn't this would be a separate spreadsheet it's a little more um paperwork i guess or not paperwork but you know help you keep track of this stuff plus if you need to order something later on well what do we use on that job oh all right let's see if we can find this or maybe it's maybe you don't have enough material you know i've had some where we've had to track down a certain lot number and i had a really good rod room attendant but he was able to track down like certain lot numbers and once you start buying filler metal and especially the weird ones like duplexes and nickel alloys and stuff there's only so much of that floating around so he could track down a certain lot number hey i need a hundred pounds of this lot number have you guys seen this or and also i'm going to circle back around as we kind of are going to close this one off here in a minute but another reason you want to keep some of this stuff dry and not damaged and whatnot because if you start buying the high dollar stuff and i'm talking nickels and duplex alloys and some of this stuff that's 30 40 50 a pound for stick rod you do not want that stuff damaged you do not want to lose 100 100 pounds or 250 pound cans of that because it got wet or the forklift driver damaged it or whatever because that is a significant quantity of money on a 50 dollar can or a 50-pound can at $50 a pound, that's 2500 bucks or $3,000 for that can of welding rod. So that's that's another, I guess, financial incentive to keep, 
you know, all your ducks in a row and keep guard some of this stuff and really take good care of it because it's not, some of this stuff is not your garden variety materials that, you know, you can run down to the local store and get overnight. Yep. I agree. All right. We good, Pete? Have we completely beat this into the dirt? I think so. So, well, in closing, we're going to try and do some of these little fireside chats or whatever. Maybe have a little less um, heavy, not heavy, but a little less uh, length in the material like we did with our ambitious project where we did AWS D11. So if anybody's got anything, you know, anything you want us to touch base on, lob us an email. Pete, what's your email address? Peter K at aswelded.com. Yeah, and I'm just gpacex at gmail.com. So if you guys want us to cover a specific, you got questions for the editor or whatever, shoot us an email and we'll uh, take a look at it. But anyways, thanks for listening. Appreciate everybody uh, who has listened. I think the last time I checked, we've had over 1,600 downloads. Anything you got to say on the way out there, Pedro? Stay safe, y'all. Yeah. Stay safe. Take care. We'll talk at you later. GP out.